Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eastern European Studies podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Lom. And today we have Imo Rybicek and Aaron Reddish here to talk to us about our new volume, Social Control Under Stalin and Khrushchev, The Phantom of a Well-Ordered State. So would you guys like to introduce yourself? Maybe we can start with Imo. Sure. Yeah. Hi, my name is Imo Rebicek and uh, yeah, thanks for having us. I'm an assistant professor for Russian and East European history at the University of Jena in Germany. And I wrote a book on the bureaucracy under Stalin and the criminal justice system in the USSR. And I was also working on Ukraine and Ukraine's, Ukrainian state building in 1918. And I'm currently writing a book on famine relief and humanitarianism under Tsarist rule until 1914. Okay, and Aaron, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Uh, I'm Aaron Reddish. I'm a professor uh, of Russian history at Wayne State University in Detroit, uh, Michigan. And um, I have traditionally focused on the peasantry uh, and peasant state relations. And I'm working or kind of finishing up a book on the People's Courts and Local Justice in the Countryside from 1917 to 1939. Uh, And then also trying to look at uh, another book on um, prisons and prisoner experience, and then also um, a book on women uh, in from the late Tsars to Soviet periods. Okay. So can you guys explain to our listeners what social control is and what inspired you to make this collection? Sure. Um, Basically, it started over beer. Um, Aaron was here in Jena in Germany uh, with his research fellowship at the Imrikertus College, and we were meeting a couple of times and were discussing back and forth several questions on Soviet history. And one of the major questions we were ourselves asking was, how do you control society in an authoritarian regime, in a dictatorship? And how do you establish norms for individual behavior? And, well, the obvious answer we usually came up with was violence or mass police violence and extra legal repression. Because obviously there's plenty of scholarship on Stalinism in the years after Stalin that deals with mass and police violence like the Gulag. There were plenty of books on prisons and purges. And so we know a lot about these things and the show trials and political persecution. But we also know that there were other ways to police and to control society in the Soviet Union that uh, also affected millions of lives. So there was an elaborate criminal and civil justice system. There was a taxation system and plenty other legal and administrative techniques to um, prohibit, encourage, or discourage individual and groups' behavior. And all these fields have been also looked at in the past decades, but separately. And we wanted to change that and bring experts on these fields together in Jena for a conference and ultimately turn it into a, a volume. 
How much does the absence of social control uh, come into play in your volume? Well, I mean, the you know, if we see social control as establishing norms of behavior and kind of this uh, state uh, imposition of discipline and power, uh, it's it's both kind of ever present and uh, also absent in that the you know that there what we find throughout the volume is that people have agency right they resist they don't comply uh, they use the state for their own good um, and that the state themselves is, is the state itself is, wasn't monolithic so you know while Stalinism was a um, authoritarian, uh, violent state. It was also a weak and mismanaged state. So, um, yeah, there's also geographic difference as well, where the countryside um, had a less kind of ever-present control than the city. Yeah, um, what we, what we uh, measure as or define as absence of state control usually enabled uh, pockets of individual agency. That's how we described it in the volume. And uh, so the question how um, is the state actually is loosening control or didn't have to or couldn't not enforce control allowed us to ask the questions, well, who actually had control over his or her own, her own agency? And this is one part, uh, one big issue that we are trying to address in the volume. Okay. So, Aaron, you wrote the first chapter. <laughs> so let's start with you. You talk about alimony in 1925 to 1939. Can you tell our readers a little bit about how the term alimony differs from a modern understanding, you know, uh, spousal support, child support, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, alimony, or in Russian, aliment, uh, I mean, it translates as alimony, but it really meant support for mothers and children. Um, it was not just limited to support of former spouses. It also became a term that was used more uh, in the 19, after kind of 1928, where they went from material support to alimony. So there's an issue of kind of like how the um, how the court defined it, but there's also an ideological difference between how alimony was understood in the Soviet Union and how alimony is understood in uh, West European, American, and post-Soviet countries. And that alimony was supposed to be a placeholder. Um, you know, the family was supposed to disappear. Uh, that legal scholars saw family as kind of this remnant of bourgeois norms based on dissent rather than on um, on kind of uh, social uh, kind of social benefits, and that alimony was just supposed to be a way for um, society to take care of women, but especially children, while the family dissolves. Now, this changes obviously after 1936, um, but the other. Uh, the other issue is that uh, alimony also became a way of, I mean, establishing social control of getting men to provide for the, uh, women and children to stay together in the family or as a family unit. Um, but it also showed a, a weak state. Uh, so there's always this tension 
that you don't see in, um, in the West. So how did women apply for alimony and what mechanisms were there for enforcing payment? Uh, so if a, um, a woman or a mother wanted to uh, get alimony, they would uh, petition the state, they would petition the, the court, the people's court, uh, and demand that that they be um, that they be paid, and uh, this was supposed to be a pretty uh, straightforward process uh, where there was an agreement uh, between the former spouses. Uh, but it was, um, you know, it was problematic in that uh, usually men uh, didn't want to pay uh, that they um, that they disagreed over. Uh, what, how much should be paid, and even who their, their, um, you know, who actually was their their child. So, how successful were they? Uh, in a way, they they weren't. I mean, I guess I could go both ways. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they were successful in that there were um, women who were marginalized, poor, illiterate who actually were able to kind of use the state mechanisms to get material support. But overall, uh, it was really hard to enforce these payments because who would actually get the man to pay up or even find them, right? It was the bailiffs, the police, uh, men made excuses of impoverishment, uh, or they stayed on the move. I kind of start the chapter with this guy, Vera Shagan, who in 1938, kind of during the terror, um, is able to evade the state uh, after, um, evade the state and not pay alimony, even though he was married three times. Um, and then, you know, the court uh, was very sympathetic to women and tried to get uh, tried to get alimony, especially after 1936 and the family laws. But in the 1920s, they imposed very small alimony. And even they, uh, even many judges thought that women were using the system for their own good. So can you give us an example of like a typical petition that a woman would file in the court? Sure. So uh, my favorite one, I guess you could say, uh, was uh, this young woman, Uriana Porokhina, who was a poor, illiterate peasant in uh, in Vyatka, I think around Slobodskoy, um, who claimed that the well-to-do miller, local miller, sweet-talked her and got her pregnant. Um, both sides brought witnesses to this to the court um, and right, the miller had witnesses saying that he was an upstanding, uh, upstanding man of the village. Uh, Porokina brought people who said that they saw her and the miller together nine months earlier by the mill, and the judge you know, ruled in her favor. So the reason why I like this story is that uh, it shows how the court. Um, and the judges were willing to side with, uh, with the marginalized mothers, right? Poor, illiterate. She wasn't married. The, the Miller was actually married and wealthy. 
So it showed how the Soviet citizens use the courts to their own good. Um, you know, there was another kind of more typical case, this uh, woman, Maria Vlasova in um, Nizhny, Nizhny Novgorod, where, you know, she had kids, uh, she was married, and the husband left, right? He moved to the city for work, uh, as millions of other peasant peasants did, and he never returned, and he didn't send any money back. And she wrote and kind of used this language, this ritual language of lament, saying that uh, she was poor, starving, uh, relying on the the um, aid of others, and that her husband had impregnated her and didn't give her one kopeck. And again, they they were uh, the court ruled in her favor. Uh, whether she ever saw that kopeck is another question. So you had noted that collective farms were fairly successful at getting payment out of the men on the farm simply because they garnished their wages for alimony before they distributed their payments. Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah. So in the the 1930s actually saw, um, even before the 1936 family code, the 1930s actually saw an increase in alimony payments. um, That is the, the number, that's the, the amount of alimony payments, as the court moved towards uh, awarding women a percentage of the man's uh, earnings. So this was easy in the factories where it'd be a quarter and up to a half of the, of the uh, earnings that could be wa- uh, that could be garnished. In the collective farm, um, you know they could they would garnish, and I'm using quotation marks here, uh, the wages by using work credits. So this is a Barshina style um, system where if the mother is, um, she decides to leave the collective farm or move, she's kind of out of luck. Likewise, uh, so this actually, I mean, it allowed some stability for alimony, but it was also... um, you know, it was very limited. Men were also, uh, you know, if men left the collective farm, if they moved to another collective farm, it became much harder to make payments. And uh, several men were able to use the law for their own good, um, limiting the their incomes uh, through moving a lot of their labor to Kustar, to handicraft production, which meant that they didn't have to pay much, uh, or they could just, as Vera Shagan uh, did, uh, leave. So how does alimony tie in with things like abortion, which becomes illegal in 1936? When I've read debates on abortion, one of the main reasons people were in favor of it was simply they didn't have the material means to raise the child they were now carrying. Um, would you like to speak a little bit more about this? Yeah. So, uh, right. In 1936, uh, abortion becomes uh, very restricted, uh, as does divorce, uh, which is uh, tied to alimony. So in 1936, there was this uh, campaign. There's a campaign against abortion, uh, but there's also a campaign to uh, increase alimony. So there was a kind of a a shock campaign, a legal shock campaign to um, get 
women um, alimony payments, and this was a kind of this uh, this wave that spread throughout the throughout the court in 1936, 1937, especially. Uh, the family code was this return to traditional relationships and traditional norms. Um, but it was in a way to kind of promote the, the family. So alimony and abortion need to be kind of tied to that. But if we go back to the 1920s, uh, abortion was, um, that is non-medical abortion, was, was still prohibited. And there were several uh, show trials, public trials, in which um, midwives or the the local healer were put on trial for uh, doing giving abortions that failed, and what it showed was this um, remnants of quote unquote backward peasant culture that were upsetting um, the, the progress of the Soviets, as well as kind of hindering. Uh, peasant women by uh, once again kind of um, uh, oppressing peasant women. So abortion, and that was kind of the same language used uh, for alimony. So they were in many in many ways kind of two two sides of the coin. And I do believe one of our other contributors to the volume has a chapter on abortion. Yes, thank you. So Amanda, Amanda McNair actually has a chapter that looks at um, abortion, the post-war from the uh, from World War II uh, through the uh, Khrushchev era. She sees abortion as this how uh, as the state kind of uh, imposing its um, uh, kind of intervening in uh, women's bodies uh, that. Um, doctors were supposed to report on women, and it led to this larger state of fear uh, of women who couldn't control their own bodies. And much of that same, much of that language actually began in the 1930s. That's interesting because the abortion cases I've come across, the people who get in trouble for performing the abortion was not the woman that had the abortion, but the man that had pressured her into it and paid for it and the doctor who had performed the procedure illegally. Yes, I found the same thing in the 1920s, right? Assuming that the, the mother actually lived. Well, yeah, it's it's hard to prosecute a dead person. It's not impossible. They have done it before. Cromwell's an excellent example, but it is more difficult. Um, I was surprised to learn that the NKVD was responsible for chasing down deadbeat dads. At the same time, they were hunting down enemies of the people. Why did this responsibility fall to the state security organs? So it's this kind of this fascinating juxtaposition where the NKVD is, uh, you know, this has an image of a strong Soviet state, especially under Stalin during the purges. But what it actually shows is a a weak judicial system that couldn't uh, get men to pay. So the judicial and policing system couldn't track down, uh, couldn't track down men. So after the 1936 family law, they um, they ended up getting the NKVD to help out to track down these people. It 
Uh, and if they were caught and brought to court, they would actually have to pay a thousand rubles to pay for the search. Um, it, you know, the NKVD was more than, um, than just an institution that, uh, that, um, tracked down enemies of the state, as we learned in, uh, in the, um, conference, David Shearer re- reminded us that the NKVD also had uh, controlled fire brigades. So they were an expansive institution. What kind of punishments were dealt out to deadbeat dads? Were they arrested? Were they publicly shamed? So uh, there was a public shaming. Uh, there was an attempt to garnish the wages uh, there were in the 1920s and early 1930s, there were some reports in newspapers after the 1936 uh, family law that increases exponentially, where in the newspapers, there would be lists of deadbeat dads uh, calling them uh, malicious, um, malicious men who, who wouldn't uh, pay and kind of um, acknowledge their social responsibility. There actually were arrests of of men who didn't pay after 1936 and they were put in jail um judges people's court judges that's judges at the lowest level the lowest level courts understood that their superiors wanted them to go after these deadbeat dads so they would actually try to impose the harshest penalty possible um and uh that was sometimes reversed by their superiors. Some people's court judges uh, wanted stamps and men's passports that said that they hadn't paid alimony. Um, that was actually illegal. So there were, there was kind of this, uh, there were monetary punishments. There was an attempt to put these men in, in prison, uh, but, and there was some public shaming. That doesn't mean that they were successful, but there were attempts. So here's the big question. What does your work add to our understanding of Soviet history? Uh, that is a big question. Uh, so it shows the importance of the courts in handling domestic disputes. Uh, that is that peasant women invited the Soviet state into their home, uh, into their family, to try to mediate, uh, to mediate disputes Peasant women used the language and uh, the norms of the Soviet state to increase their material life. So there is, in that way, peasant women, as well as men who tried to um, fight against alimony, uh, they understood the language, the values, and the norms that they needed to um, to live in uh, the Soviet state. At the same time, it also shows that the Soviet state handed off its control and its welfare state to the people, that it was not strong enough to be able to have a large state that would either get rid of the need for alimony or uh, even to handle social, uh, social welfare and uh, kind of living kind of living standards so it shows the power of of social control of establishing norms and laws to control individual behavior but it also shows a a weak 
state and a kind of a cheesecloth type welfare state, especially in the countryside. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, Emo, you wrote a chapter on juvenile delinquency in the 1950s. Can you explain to our listeners what activities fell under the heading of delinquency? Yeah. Um, if we talk about juvenile delinquency in the Soviet Union, um, we mainly talk about children being out on the streets um, because it's important to know uh, in the post-war Soviet Union, homeless children were a mass phenomenon. Over the course of the war, millions had lost their parents and refugee waves and evacuation transports had thrown these kids into a whirlwind of migration. And many of them were facing poverty and hunger and they were trying to make ends meet. And so I was interested when I was writing my paper uh, in juvenile behavior in a public space that prompted a institutional reaction, a reaction by state authorities, which they everything and everything they considered deviant, which was admittedly a huge spectrum because they had these catch-all categories for unsupervised and neglected children or orphan children, bies nadzorniki and bies prizorniki. And in this big spectrum, there were, for instance, violent youth gangs that played a crucial role. So in one case, I had this uh, youth, youth gang in the police reports that consisted of 50 young people in Beresniki under the age of 18. And they were basically terrorizing this small mining town at the Urals. They were beating up the inhabitants. They were attacking the police. They were setting up things on fire, throwing stones at cars. And... At the other end of the spectrums, you'll find in these police reports many kids selling alcohol in the schools, but also often children were wandering around, children from single-parent homes were sleeping in factories and were then picked up by the police and sent either back home or in foster care or in prison. And they were all part of this larger image, uh, what the Soviet authorities deemed as a threat to social order. And yes, and this, was, this spectrum was what I was interested in. So there had been much earlier concern about homeless children dating back to the Civil War, these biz, prizorniki and stuff too, um, as the Civil War also dislocated huge amounts of people, killed huge amounts of people. Uh, is there a lot of parallel between sort of the Civil War era uh, fight against homeless children and post-World War II? Yeah, I think it's a combined issue. So. Um, the term itself, yes, prisonike, as the phenomenon of mass or homeless children in general, was a, a phenomenon that dates back to the Tsarist era. And um, as in many industrializing societies in the late 19th century, children were part of the workforce. And so them being on the street, them being mobile, but also them being self-organized and committing crimes was kind of part of a larger industrial, uh, larger phenomenon in the industrialized world. But it became a mass phenomenon with the world and civil war. And so this is where it becomes a Soviet phenomenon, because from the start, Soviet society was constantly being uprooted through the war, through collectivization, the mass operations, and most importantly, World War II. So people were constantly be on the move or being pushed on the move. And youth gangs, juvenile crime, but also unsupervised children and many millions of orphans were always integral elements of these mobile and uh, mobile landscapes. Um, so what I'm describing for the post-war time is basically an ongoing problems that has had been adding ever new layers and dimension well into the 1940s. 
So what steps did the Soviet state take to try and combat juvenile delinquency? Well, that's the crucial question, because the question actually is who did what? Um, Various institutions of the Soviet state were engaged in addressing that issue, and not all of these institutions were following the same premise. The police, on the one hand, was basically trying to come through the streets and collect the kids and send the kids they encountered uh, into state custodies or into orphanages, prisons, and labor camps of the Gulag as well. And very often, these police officials didn't really care if those young people had committed crimes in the first place or if they were just simply caught without supervision. And the result was that prisons and orphanages and all these other institutions were crowded with gang members, uh, even adult gang members, uh, orphans, regular teenagers. They were all thrown into this mix. And by this preventive or preemptive way of uh, policing juvenile behavior from the police on hands on the side of the police. On the other hand, we have the property and the courts as part of the judiciary who were trying to diffuse this mix and who were trying to sort out the delinquents by legal standards and were trying to tell unsupervised youth from youth criminals. So procurators and their assistants were visiting prisons. They went through the cases, summoned witnesses and parents to sort criminals from social cases, so to say. And even when they were dealing with criminal cases from juveniles, they were handling these with much more care than the police initially showed. So there's one example. Um, there's a young guy named Nedio Pekin. I think he was 16 years old. And he was caught stealing 70 kilograms of flour in the mill where his father had been working, which was in the late 1940s a massive felony. And But instead of sending this young man automatically to court, the procurator was interested in the case and wanted to know more about the background of him. So he made some inquiries how Nidio Pekin's father had failed as a parent, how Nidio Pekin himself had started drinking. And so it became uh, much more of a social than a criminal, just a criminal case. And Nidio Pekin himself was ultimately not prosecuted, even though there was enough evidence for severe theft in the late 1940s, which have, would have brought him into the Gulag for at least 10 years. So we have these different premises by state institutions and also an ongoing struggle between the police and the proxy that went on through the 40s and 50s. And on the one hand, the situation in the orphanages and these institutions didn't really change. But what happened was that uh, the criminal investigations against underage delinquents became more professional, more thorough, which again led to more young people being released from custody after detention. And also, which is important to note, that the more often officials from the procuracy visited these prisons and these orphanages, the higher was the chance that um, institutions, and as particularly the directors and the leading personnel of these institutions, were held uh, accountable uh, in, in a legal way for the horrid situations in these facilities, because they were usually in a poor hygienic state. And the mix of adult and underage criminals I was talking about uh, exposed very many young people to violence. Uh, but this is also important. It was only after Stalin's death that the justice organs and the procuracy in particular got more political support by the Communist Party and thus more leverage over the police and also the Gulag. And they were able to induce, induce some changes, at least. But nevertheless, orphanages remained actually a place that w- were rarely inspected and very poorly taken care of well into the 21st century, actually. 
Would there be any institution we would recognize as like a social work institution or was that function solely handled by the procuracy? Well, there were a couple of institutions dealing with social issues among minors and the procuracy and uh, the the police were the basically the most important in that regard. They were dealing the most with the most cases. So there was a network of orphanages um, that belonged to the Ministry of Education, and there were also um, other so-called um, kids' houses that were run not just by the police but also by part of the Ministry of Education. And but it was a very um, well, um, a very erratic and very um, dysfunctional system or network of institutions, and only the procuracy, the police, were actually the ones who who uh, had a certain kind of overview over the situation of the children. Were there any attempts at, <coughs> sorry, proactive uh, measures to keep children off the streets before they would get into trouble? For example, creating after-school programs or some kind of mentorship. Yeah, these kind of programs were actually uh, brought up in the early 1950s and were very prominent in the Khrushchev era. Um, and mostly um, they were uh, not run but initiated by the Komsomol. So there were attempts on the hands of the state and especially by local party organs to uh, provide um youth space and uh, basically pub youth programs uh, in, turn, in combination with um, uh, working programs, but also with cultural programs. And the Komsomol was basically trying to set up an environment that would keep children from the streets, but also the police and the, judici the judiciary and employees of the procuracy were going into schools and were basically setting up emergency meetings with the directors of certain schools where the situation had escalated. And so in cases where children were selling alcohol at uh, at the schoolyard or where there was an, uh, uh, where, uh, registration of many crimes in, this, in, this, in the certain school districts, the police and the procuracy were together uh, basically uh, create emergency meeting with the director to create some kind of or to work on a more productive environment. But didn't that didn't really play out really well in the 50s. So overall, how successful were these measures at combating juvenile delinquency? Oh, that's a good question. And on the one hand, the problem is it's hard to measure. And so you have this juvenile, uh, the statistics of juvenile crime, but they often also um, are basically mirroring how much of the how uh, effective the campaign was. So actually how many proceedings uh, investigations were initiated against juvenile uh, against juveniles in the first place so they rather reflect on the success or the the lack of success uh, of a certain legal campaign uh, but on the other hand you have uh, the reports from within the uh, youth institutions and from within the orphanages and sometimes even the, the juvenile departments of the Gulag and the labor camps. And what we can see is actually a certain improvement uh, in a way that they would be inspected more often in the 50s and 60s. But overall, overall it's hard to actually assume that there was a, a, a evolution in quality in terms of how the Soviet state did with juvenile behavior. And it's a question I probably should have asked a little earlier. Can you explain to our listeners what exactly juvenile means? What ages this entails? 
what age is there a criminal responsibility for their actions, and what age do they become legally adults in the eyes of the law? Well, the age of criminal responsibility was lowered to 12 in the 1930s and again, then again later on raised to 14. But one important aspect about this dealing with juvenile delinquency or with juvenile issues, so to say, um, is that the, the police was the first institution that got into contact with juveniles on the street. And they were basically the first responder. And as being the first responder, what they did was pooling them and basically going through the streets and throwing them into a mix. And they didn't really care which age they were. So you have five-year-olds, seven-year-olds sometimes, who sometimes were uh, orphans or just uh, from single parents' home and the parents didn't have time or didn't pay attention where the kid was at that moment. And and so these kids are getting mixed up um, in social and criminal proceedings, and they were all sometimes sharing the same space in these in these orphanages or in these uh, child houses from the police. And it, it was actually the proxy that was trying to establish a clear line for under fourteen year olds, and then to establish a line between those who were social cases and those who were criminal cases. So you have a legal age of legal criminal responsibility, but in practice. Um, particularly when it came to uh, young people ending up in uh, police or foster institutions, um, this this age didn't really matter in practice because they all ended up in the same place. And it was up to the prosecutor, if he or she was successful, uh, to actually get them out. So if the cops are going around arresting all the kids they see unsupervised on the street, was there a safe place where uh, parents could let their kids outside to play without having to be there and watch them? Or did the cops like raid playgrounds? No, they, they didn't really raid playgrounds, but uh, they, the cops, first of all, there weren't too many militiamen on the street actually in the 1950s. Um, so they had the, the militia, as the civil police was called, was dealing with severe, severe personnel shortages. And so cops were not too present on the street. But what happened was that young children, uh, teenagers were very much present on the streets. So it was actually, um, many of them were actively confronting the militia. And very often um, there are certain spots in the public uh, where the, where the most encounters between, between police and uh, juveniles, and this were, for instance, were train stations because they were also very popular among children if they wanted to travel from point A to point B, often illegally. And so they would hang onto the train or jump onto the train. And so it was more about uh, a confrontation in the public space uh, that happened every once in a while at certain spots in the public space, for instance, train station or schoolyards. Uh, but there, there were no raids um, of, um, of backyards for children or something like that. Okay. Was there a moral aspect to this campaign on juvenile delinquency? Certainly when you talk about the focus on juvenile delinquency in the U.S. in the 1950s, for example, there is a fear of children consuming inappropriate materials, a limit on what can be published in comics, a limit on certain types of music as corrupting to youth. Does that also exist in the Soviet Union? Sure, of course. I mean, there were parallels, so to say. Um, um, you have a, a general con generational conflict in the post-war society. And um, even though 
the, the numbers were quite different in the Soviet Union is because we're talking about millions of children being either without parents or with just one of a parent because of the losses during the war and who were basically challenging this foster and policing system. But the parallels were that we have a war-torn youth and uh, in a, a, a juvenile society that had experienced violence and who, what, that was growing up without fathers mostly and that were looking for ways to define themselves and setting them apart from older generations so so we have this combination of poverty and social unrest and a general big generational gap that led to conflicts and violence but also to cultural conflicts and i mean juliana first book silence last generation is really telling in, in this way because she she describes how social conflicts in this way and generational conflicts had a very strong cultural dimension which mirrored developments um, among post-war youth in the western context as well so we have young people wearing provocative fashion hearing western music and uh, this cultural conflict quickly then was politicized by the authorities and there were attempts by the communist party to diminish the influence of western cultural products of western music western fashion of ways of dressing and way trying to diminish or to basically push back uh, young people wearing the, their hair in a certain fashion and also pushing back certain Western cultural products like quote-unquote black music. Um, so there, there are parallels in a way. Uh, but it's also important to note that, uh, that wasn't, it wasn't such a hard front. So there was, were attempts by the state actually to provide cultural alternatives for youth, to engage with the youth on the cultural level, uh, sometimes by official jazz production, for instance, in the late 1950s and early 1960s, my colleague Michael Abhesser, he's actually the expert on that. And uh, But these kind of campaigns didn't really work out that well. So you have this um, post-war generational conflict, which was very quickly politicized, uh, but also which in comparison to the Western countries turned much more violent. And I think this is the most important difference, which was that it was handled by the police on a mass scale. So you have these preventive, preemptive ways of policing juveniles away from the street. And you don't observe that in post-war Western Europe or the US. So now it's your turn for the big question. What does your work add to our understanding of the Soviet system? Well, my overall work as this chapter was about, it's about the importance of legal functionality for the Soviet state uh, during and after Stalin. So the issue of juvenile delinquency is a one case in point. The procracy tried to tell apart criminal from social cases. They tried to guarantee a due lawful proceeding and thorough investigations of criminal cases. So the procracy's ambition was to enforce social control on legal grounds, which had little to do with Rechtsstaat, because political prisoners were factually exempt from procedural legislation. Party members were not liable to ordinary prosecution. So that is the procurator's ambition was to police and control those kids in my chapter in a more precise manner and also in a more predictable manner. By looking at juvenile delinquency, but also on the campaigns against theft or desertion from work and all the other criminal proceedings that were not considered political in the legal way, we see how parts of the Soviet system under Stalin were striving for functionality and predictable forms of policing. You can call it legal repression if you want and often against resistance and the claims and also the culture of the secret police and the civil police, which stood for more preventive, violent, and particularly arbitrary ways of mass policing. So the book I wrote, from which this is a chapter of, 
is about this procracy and the evolution of these ways to enforce social control during and after Stalin. How the Soviet regime basically became more effective and more precise in policing and repressing people during and after Stalin. I want to show how this evolution took really off with the death in 1953. Okay, thank you. So were there any other chapters that stood out to you guys that maybe you'd like to highlight from this book? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd re recommend all of them, but but I'd highlight Dina Mayal's paper on housing disputes in particular. Um, because the thing is, after the war, millions of the people of people in the Soviet Union had no roof over their head and they were basically waiting for housing programs. But Dina shows in her paper that there were plenty of disputes over the housing space that was available. And so people claimed their rights in courts. And they were appealing to courts in a technical way to make their claim for a living space. And Dina provides fascinating example. Uh, one of them was a case in which a woman who was released from the Gulag in 1953, found out that her flat had been sold after her arrest back then in the 1940s. And she wanted to get the flat back and technically sued, if one will, in court for her property to be reinstated. The woman living there now claimed that she had bought it from the Gulag prisoner's son. So these two women went through the various legal echelons and each of these echelons and courts issued a different verdict. The final verdict by the Supreme Court then denied the former Gulag inmate her flat. But what is striking that both of them, that both of these women, utilized the legal resources and argued on legal grounds to negotiate. And um, they used the legal system for their own needs. And more importantly, they had the confidence to do it. Even a former Gulag inmate relied on the same authorities um, that had sentenced her to a labor camp. I actually see something quite similar in the 1930s, about 1936, with returning kulaks from the special settlements, uh, where they also would like some of their property that has been taken, uh, and they often appeal for its return. They're usually not successful, but they do use the similar form of appeals and mechanisms that you just described. Yeah, and the returning kulaks, or rather they their claim, uh, their legal claims actually uh, uh, posed a significant threat to political authorities in the 1930s. Yeah, they weren't real happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Aaron is... I, yeah, I would just add uh, that, um, you know, you, I see the same thing in the early 1920s of uh, people who had their, for example, their mills confiscated uh, or their farms confiscated during the Civil War, appealing to the People's Court to get them back. That is the the idea of kind of trying to fight back on nationalization. So one of the uh, neat things about Dina's work is it shows how uh, what was happening under the Khrushchev era wasn't, right? It didn't come out of thin air, that it was... Um, an evolution of um, language and practices that, you know, I would argue began in the 1920s. Uh, so one of the neat things about this book is that it looks at social control, not in just one specific era, that we see changes from the Stalin to Khrushchev era, but it also shows uh, how, uh, and, as an aside, uh, there's a great chapter 
uh, by Evgeny Lezina on the KGB and how the KGB kind of turns into focusing on prophylactic uh, interrogations and interviews uh, under the Khrushchev and then the Brezhnev era um, that shows kind of this change. But what we also see is this uh, amazing continuity uh, in how social order is kind of conceived and practiced uh, through the pre-war and post-war eras. So, all right, that's my kind of my big spiel. But um, so I will reiterate what Emo said, that all of the chapters are amazing and that people should read it. Uh, I was uh, really impressed by uh, two chapters that look at the uh, war and especially the post-war era, um, Alan Berenberg has this great chapter on hard labor, uh, the category of hard labor in the gulag that began during the war and then um, continued briefly after the war. The interesting thing about hard labor, which uh, was really kind of exclusive, was kind of the most punishing for prisoners in the gulag, this focused on isolation and on punishment and on severe labor is uh, he shows both that the mortality rates were much higher than we uh, than we might have imagined and that uh, that the, we shouldn't understand the gulag as a singular institution that there were competing voices competing systems within the gulag itself so I thought that was uh, a really kind of fascinating deeply researched chapter. On the other side, Juliet Cadeau looks at how prisoners in the same gulags uh, wrote letters uh, to the authority, to the Supreme Court, uh, right after the war to free themselves. And she looks at the at the language um, of thieves and how they used the language of the state and crafted themselves to try to get release. Uh, some of them admitted their crimes. They talked about how it was mostly done through uh, their the need, through destitution, right? Stealing a couple kilos of flour when they were working in the bakery, that someone was uh, uh, destitute, that they were an orphan, that they were part of the proletariat. Uh, and um, really, at some point, it's kind of effective language of using the state uh, to gain release. So uh, I, I was really amazed by, again, the research uh, of, of Juliet in that, in that chapter. Are there any other chapters you really like? Well, I know of a great <laughs> chapter, <laughs> that, uh, the second chapter. Uh, <laughs> where are you going with that, Sam? Um, Hint. That, yeah, I mean, obviously, Emo and I were thrilled by your chapter uh, on taxation in a region of Kirov. So uh, Sam, would you actually be willing to talk a little bit about that? I would just, you know, one of the neat things about your chapter is your focus on taxation, uh, in part because we just don't look at taxation under in the Soviet state and also kind of how taxation was a form of social control. So I would know that's not really a question, but I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. 
Sure. Uh, well, I mean, uh, taxation is not really a sexy topic. <laughs> it depends um, who you ask. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons it's understudied is it just doesn't seem particularly sexy. But I thought it was interesting to see how taxation worked as sort of a carrot and a stick to get people to join collective farms. Um, and to look at how collective farmers had reduced taxes, how they got certain discounts depending on the year and how many animals or something they brought into the farm. Whereas uh, people that remained outside the collective farms, individual smallholders tended to have very high tax rates. Uh, and that would even include like their money they could earn with their horse or any sort of handicrafts that they did were also taxed, uh, often almost at 100% of their income. And this was a way to try and encourage these people to join the collective farm. So any questions about specific mechanisms? or? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it goes in the same direction, but the thing is, what struck me the most was that... Um, you described how the central authorities in the 1930s who were basically yeah, in the middle of conducting the mass operations, the Great Terror, and arresting, killing deviant groups or what they, groups that they actually considered deviant, um, that these officials were also looking for, uh, quote, sustainable long-term solutions, end of quote, by taxation um, in dealing with smallholders and in policing people's behavior while the mass operations were going on. So, how do we reconcile with these these two aspects of so like governing or controlling the populace through taxation and terror at the same time? Well, it's an interesting question. My first book is on the Constitution. And the 1936 Constitution is very striking in that it is the first Constitution that reenfranchises the whole of the Soviet population. Before that, uh, you had restrictions on who could vote and be elected based on class. Uh, people that were members of exploiting classes like kulaks or former religious officials could not vote or stand for office. And in 1936, these limitations are removed. Um, Stalin himself explains it as feeling that the classes who oppose the Soviet Union have been destroyed. We don't need to worry about them and we can integrate the remnants. Um, so there is this push to sort of be conciliatory towards these former enemies and integrate them into Soviet society. And I think you do see that in the tax policies aimed at the individual smallholders. Uh, they are routinely told, um, local officials are routinely told by the uh, head of uh, Narcom Zam the People's Commissariat of Agriculture, that they cannot deny individual smallholders the right to join collective farms, that you must bring them into the fold. This is deeply unpopular <laughs> at the local level for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of times these individual smallholders had liquidated their assets. They had sold off their horses, their agricultural machinery, their seed, and so they didn't really have anything to bring into the collective farms. 
And often the collective farms were responsible for their tax debt for that year. Meaning the collective farms would have to pay their taxes at the individual smallholder rate for these new members, which was not popular. Uh, Additionally, local officials tend to see them as troublemakers. In the district I look at, Zuzinski district, there had been uh, a lot of problems in the Civil War period. Uh, Kolchak had actually gotten as far as Zuzinski district. You have a lot of whites in the area. This results in a lot of caches of weapons left behind. Zuzinski is also sparsely populated and frequently has small villages or little hutheri, these one to two family farms in the forest. Um, And this means that resistance against the Soviet state is pretty strong and fairly effective. It gets to the point in the 1920s where they actually have to call in uh, military units to battle bandits who are living in the forest and attacking people, uh, particularly communist functionaries. It is not uncommon up through 1932-33 for tax assessors or Communist Party organizers to go into the forest and be found dead. <laughs> um, which, you know, clearly the locals don't really like. And so because they view them as problematic, they violate the state laws. Um, there are protections in the Constitution that guarantee people's right to continue being individual smallholders and also a right against illegal search and seizure. And they violate these laws by basically jacking up the taxes on these people. I have a chart in the chapter that shows how um, local officials, either from the rural Soviet or from the district, would take the tax rolls that they had and reassess taxes to the individual smallholders to compensate for what they thought was unreported handicraft income and give them a much larger tax bill. And when they couldn't pay it, they would go out and do an inventory of their property and sell it uh, to pay this tax bill. And they would sell it down to the last hut. They were selling spoons, teacups, mirrors, and sometimes they would break into these people's houses to steal their stuff and sell it for back taxes, which you can imagine was not particularly popular. Uh, And they would often sell it to their friends or acquaintances at discounted prices, which was technically illegal, (laughs) Uh, but they did it anyway. And so there's this real conflict between... um, the local officials and how they feel a need to sort of just squeeze every dime out of these individual smallholders who are troublesome to get rid of them, but also to meet budgetary shortfalls. You know, Zuzinski district was having trouble paying its workers. They were often three to four months behind in pay. They were not meeting their financial plans. And so, you know, this was a quick way to make up for some of that. And the, Regional government and the government in Moscow. It appears that some of the regional government, particularly Bubnov, who was head of the Kryispolkom and later gets arrested, uh, tacitly supported what the uh, local officials were doing. But Moscow certainly did not. And as a result, in 1938, cases are opened against both... um, 
the RICOM chairman and uh, the RICOM chairman, uh, Batirov and Shadayev, respectively, for their role in um, basically abusing tax policy and levying illegal taxes and illegally seizing property. And there are actually appeals from people who had their taxes illegally assessed to get either reimbursed or um, get their property that was sold at auction back. And the courts in some cases do rule in their favor. They say that the, uh, the district needs to compensate them for their illegally seized property, which is also interesting and ties into what Aaron was talking about earlier. So, I mean, one of the really fascinating parts about your chapter is just the the focus on the regional and how there's, you know, you talked about how things were unpopular, how there were conflicts, uh, and, you know, it reinforces how important uh, the regional perspective or even the the local perspective is to understanding uh, how people experienced uh, the Soviet state. Um, so, you know, a shout out to you. I mean, it's also based on amazing research in the care of archives, but could you talk a little bit about, uh, the role of the individual, uh, both at the local and the regional level? Well, individual personalities do matter. Um, I am currently working on a book manuscript looking at how personal conflict becomes politicized and how it really affects the outcome of certain policies, Uh, even to the point where I have an example from Shabalinsky District where a agronomist for the RISO is accused of being an enemy of the people. And it appears that he was, in fact, quite crappy at his job. He uh, mixed up varietal seed with non-varietal seed, so degrading the kinds of seed used. Uh, Some of it was left to mold or get infested with uh, different parasites because it wasn't properly checked. And most problematically, he didn't actually bother to verify the sowing plans. So collective farms were given sowing plans for more land than they actually possessed. And that also meant they were assessed taxes and forced to pay procurement plans on grain that didn't exist on land that they didn't actually have, (laughs) which you can imagine did not make them happy. Um, And so he he was really not doing his job very well. He's accused of being an enemy of the people. And I think, well, he's a goner. But it turns out. The RICOM secretary goes to bat for him. He simply refuses to open an investigation despite multiple attempts from the OPCOM to get him to do so. And as a result, this agronomist is never even arrested, never charged. In the 1940s, he becomes head of the RISO. So individuals really could affect the way even you know serious campaigns like repression play out at the district level and collectivization and life on the collective oh, farm. yeah i mean right? i have people yeah. that refuse to throw kulaks out of their houses because they have little kids and they just say i'm i'm not doing this we're not throwing children onto the street yeah uh and you know i mean you're the region that you're studying is in northeast Kirov, which is in the northeast of Russia. So it's, you know, it's not the most fertile land. Uh, and I'm sure that the 
I expect that this that this story would be different if it was in Ukraine or the yeah, Lower Volga I, or something. I, people don't really care about Kirov. Kirov is economically fairly marginal, and that was true even in the Tsarist period. There was not much serfdom here, um, and so as a result, people in Kirov kind of get to do whatever the hell they want, <laughs> and that does result in things like collectivization starting later, being less harsh. You've studied it; you know that a lot of it is more voluntary. People see that it's utilitarian and useful and builds on Zemstva traditions. And it certainly looks like repression starts far later and is much less harsh in Kirov. You know, we both look at, um, you know, like judicial people and stuff. And there's a lot of survivors of people who are accused and arrested of being enemies of the people. And then later their case is reviewed and they're simply amnestied and go back to work for the government. Yeah. You're like, well, this has got to be awkward. <laughs> All right, so uh, you kind of going back at kind of the, the larger, you know, you you asked us what is the uh, significance of our work and how it understands social control, how it kind of un- leads to a better understanding of social control. So I want to throw that question back to you, especially with the, you know, the idea of taxation, maybe how other scholars can look at taxation to understand social control. Well, I think it's important to look at taxation as a mechanism for getting people to do things. I mean, we certainly understand it that way when we look at what we would call sin taxes, you know, taxes on cigarettes or um, fizzy drinks as a way to try and create a healthier population by discouraging these negative behaviors. And I think the Soviet state engaged in a lot of similar programs where they would try to get people to do one thing and not another um, by making it financially expedient uh, and making you know things like being an individual smallholder very, very costly. I mean, they eventually destroy the individual smallholding class in um, late 1937-38 with a big tax on horse ownership. Uh, and it's almost impossible to farm on your own without your own horse. So that is sort of the death blow there. And it comes through taxation, not any form of repression. And that's kind of the essence of the, I think, of our book, of looking at nonviolent means of social control. It's a wonderful chapter, Sam. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the the fact that taxation is essentially not just about creating revenue, but also about encouraging or discouraging behavior is the best example uh, for the significance of non-repressive ways to to control society, which was the initial idea to for this volume. And it also shows, um, I think, which is one major takeaway for crypto volume is that. Uh, even though we have to acknowledge, of course, the, the the history of mass violence and mass terror, and about the state enforcing its will, uh, it's it's also about an impossible claim. Um, this is why we use the concept of a well-ordered state. It, it reflects a certain claim, like totalitarian claim, but uh, this is about the claim of the Soviet state under Stalin and beyond. Uh, that was the claim to develop administrative and legal means to transform society, to regulate individual behavior in order to tap society's fullest potential. And this premise, this claim, remained intact throughout the history of the Soviet Union for the entire 20th century. Um, but the, the tools to enforce it changed. So by from using mass violence and later on referring stronger to the courts and later on 
through the Soviet state relying on KGB informants, um, the state adapted its certain tools um, to enforce something um, it deemed, well, basically to enforce social control without ever really reaching that goal. So this is thus we use the term of a phantom of a well-ordered state. Well, Aaron, did you want to say something? No, uh, I would, you know, just add to what Emo was saying that, you know, this book really, uh, you know, your chapter as well as the other chapters um, really make us uh, think about kind of the transformation of the Soviet state. It makes us question the periodization of Soviet history. Uh, you know, so our, the book is divided into three parts, right? Sam and mine is in the first part. Uh, then we have a section on the on the war, and then Ivo, uh, Dina, Yorm Gerlitsky, um are part of uh, the last last section, which is on uh, kind of the Khrushchev era. But as I was saying before, it really shows this kind of this continuity, this reliance on on social control, on the court, on the bureaucracy, on taxation. Uh, alongside violence. So it really shows kind of uh, this continuity in understanding the kind of policies of how the state control tried to control the people. And, you know, that the, that, you know, this phantom of a well-ordered state also gets at this idea that the state was, um, you know, filled with internal bureaucratic tensions. You know, Sam, you mentioned these individuals who fought with each other, that there were institutions that that fought with each other as well. Uh, and it provided pockets or avenues for the people to um, carve out spaces for themselves, uh, that there was kind of agency as well and fighting back at this social control. So thank you guys for coming here and discussing this book with me. Uh, my last question is, do you have any new projects that you're working on that our listeners can anticipate? Aaron, maybe you'd like to start? Yeah. So, um, you know, besides this uh, volume on the courts, uh, I am uh, working on a book on the prisons, um, really kind of focusing on two prisons uh, right now, uh, kind of depends on where Research is going to go looking at the Christie prison in uh, St. Petersburg and then the prison that used the same blueprints of the St. Petersburg prison in Samara and uh, how the state tried to uh, control its prisoners, right? Rehabilitate its prisoners using kind of modern penology and uh, surprise, surprise, how that failed. So, uh, yeah, I'm work, uh, that's my next big book project. Well, and I tried to finish a book uh, about famine relief in the late Russian Empire and uh, deals with the idea if and how autocratic systems or authoritarian systems actually were operating in a humanitarian way. And spoiler alert, they did, but under different premises than you would expect. And so that's that's what I'm trying to finish over the course of the next month. Okay, well, thank you guys for being here on this podcast. And I guess I will let you go for the night. Thank, thank you very you. much for having us. Yeah.
Bye. Bye.